Everybody, welcome back. If you are here earlier, welcome to any special guests or anybody here for the first time today. What a blessing that we can continue to worship our risen Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We pray that our hearts would be turned towards him with joy and peace, and we pray that he would bless us through this. One announcement that I saved from this morning, we have a consistory meeting this Wednesday at 8 o'clock. We once again welcome Pastor Phil to lead us in worship. We pray that God would grant him all that he has need of. Our call to worship is from Psalm 103, a psalm of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. All right, would you please stand? Where does our help come from? And let's say together. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. Second time this day, receive the welcome, the greeting of your God and King. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's sing together. 47, Psalm 47, we're going to sing stanzas 1 and 3. second time uh, this day and ask you to please join me if you would in a in a brief prayer heavenly father once again a second time this day we are 
in need, O Lord, of listening ears and receptive hearts. Father, I too am in need, sometimes desperately so, for the descent of your spirit to make the word clear and powerful and effective. Father, there is no pastor worth his weight who does not feel, O oh God, the weight of his calling in preaching the word from week to week. The Apostle Paul felt it well when he said, I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom but in the demonstration of the spirit and of power that our faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. And so, Father, we pray that you would use me as a weak instrument to preach your word. And, Father, we pray, too, for ourselves, all of us, for, again, receptive hearts. Because on a second time of worship this day, Lord, in the midst of this heat, in the midst of the time of the day, Lord, sometimes it's hard to focus. So we pray that the word would be preached in such a way that the word would be intriguing to us and the gospel would be sweet to us. And we pray, O Lord, through the preaching that Jesus and the gospel of the kingdom would be the central focus. Help us all to recede into the background, O God, in order that Christ may come to the foreground and that our hearts may be knit to him anew We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What I'd like to do before we sing um, our next songs, I'd like to uh, draw your attention to the book of Hebrews. So we're in the book of Hebrews, New Testament book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9. And I'd like to draw your attention to Hebrews 9 verses 1 through 12. And we're going to read these words together. We'll sing, and then I'm going to draw attention to one of our confessional documents called uh, the Heidelberg Catechism, going back to 1563. This is an old document, but it stood the test in time as a teaching tool for the body of Christ. So uh, Hebrews chapter 9, and you're going to see that Hebrews 9 is reflective of a lot of the book of Hebrews that contrasts the, what we call the Old and the New Covenants or the Old Testament and the New Testament. So if you're relatively new to the Bible, you'll know probably that, that there is two major sections of the Bible, Old and New Testament. So the first two-thirds of the, of the Bible is the Old Testament. The last third is the New. And the whole of the Old Testament is designed to point forward to the coming of Jesus and our need for Jesus. So Hebrews 9 reflects that. Now let's draw attention. Hebrews 9, verse 1. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which was the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It's called the holy place. And behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties, but into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, 
not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. And we're going to follow this up with the singing of hymn 23. If you have this book with you, the Book of Praise, I want to draw your attention to page 545. Uh, otherwise, we're going to have uh, the question and answer here before us um, from uh, this document called, again, uh, the Heidelberg Catechism, one of the confessional documents of our church. Um, this afternoon, we're going to consider something that um, is, is not... I think the experience of most of us here, uh, probably every one of us here, I don't know for sure, um, but we are, we're going to be taking a look at uh, something that many people in the world engage in, participate in, in a church called the Roman Catholic Church, uh, many of them on a daily basis. And what do they participate in? They participate in what's called the Roman Catholic Mass. And um, some of you may be wondering, well, why do we even take time to look at the Roman Catholic Mass? Because the fact of the matter is we're not Roman Catholics, right? And we don't celebrate the Mass or observe the Mass. What we do is we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. But one of the, a couple of reasons why we, we consider the Roman Catholic Mass today um, particularly as it is compared and contrasted with the Lord's Supper, is so that we might understand in a better way why we do what we do in observing the Lord's Supper in the way that we do, and also ultimately so that we have a greater grasp of what the Bible calls the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. So I want to draw your attention now to question answer 80, and what I want to do is 
uh, read the question, and I'm not sure if you do this here, but in case you don't, I'm going to ask you to do it to uh, respond together with the answer, right? So here's the question. What, is, uh, what difference is there between the Lord's Supper and the papal mass? And let's say together, the Lord's Supper testifies to us first that we have complete forgiveness of all of our sins through the one sacrifice of Jesus Christ, which he himself accomplished on the cross once for all. And second, that through the Holy Spirit, we are grafted into Christ, who with his true body is now in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and this is where he wants to be worshipped. But the Mass teaches, first, that the living and the dead do not have the forgiveness of sins through the suffering of Christ until he is still offered for them daily by the priests. And second, that Christ is bodily present in the form of bread and wine, and there is to be worship. Therefore, the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and an accursed idolatry. Mm. You notice how this answer ends? It's, uh, it's uh, one of the sharpest statements, I think, in this document called the Heidelberg Catechism, which is known by people not only within our tradition, or, but individuals outside of our tradition that have become acquainted with the Heidelberg Catechism. It, the, 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 the language of the Catechism is largely irenic. That is, it's kind of a, a peaceful and winsome language. And in many ways, it's the, it's the kind of catechetical document that oftentimes with people outside of a tradition does not rub them wrong. And a lot of times in, in working with individuals who, who come within uh, what we call a reformed tradition in time, not right away, first we want to get them acquainted with the Bible, eventually we want them to get acquainted with his doctrine because if they really want to grow in their understanding of the good news of Jesus Christ and the doctrines of the Bible, this is exactly where they need to go. But a lot of times when, when people read this and, and, and this Q&A 80 ends with these words, it's, it kind of shocks them. Therefore, the Mass is basically nothing but a denial of the one sacrifice and suffering of Jesus Christ and an accursed idolatry. Now, part of the reason why it ends with those two words, accursed, idolatry, I want to submit to you, is because that language is also found in a confessional document of the Roman Catholic Church called the Council of Trent. And it is still an official document. It was written around the same time as the Heidelberg Catechism, and it is still an official document within the Roman Catholic Church. And in that document, not just on one occasion, but a number of occasions, it basically says that those who do not agree with the particulars of the Mass as is taught by the Roman Catholic Church, they are anathema. They are accursed. That's strong language. The writers of the Catechism then, not a tit for tat, but basically say, well, listen, if you believe as part of the Mass that Jesus is found in terms of his essence and his presence actually in the bread and wine and is therefore to be worshipped, then we call that an accursed idolatry. So it kind of goes back and forth that way. But why this such the strong language? We'll get into that a little bit more here uh, this afternoon. Um, I want to begin with this on a little bit of a personal note. Just bear with me. It's take a couple of minutes. About uh, 35 years ago, my wife Joy and I worked in Montreal, Quebec at a hospitality center in uh, a place called Old Montreal. And I don't know if you've ever been to Montreal, Quebec, but uh, maybe if you have been there, it may be that you visited Old Montreal, a lot of older buildings, kind of a beautiful area. And we worked at a hospitality center down there, a Christian hospitality center, where we had the opportunity of sharing the gospel with a lot of individuals who would who would come to Montreal, I won't get into all the details, that's not what is most important. But two things about our time there. First of all, my wife and I um, lived in a, a Hasidic conservative Jewish neighborhood in a, in a section of Montreal called Cote de Neige, which was within walking distance of a very well-known Catholic church called St. Joseph Oratory. And many pilgrims from all over the world would come to that church, and I can envision it still today. You have this large church building, on a hill, 
with various wooden steps that go up uh, two or three levels, finally that sends you into the entrance of that church. And pilgrims would come and they would get down on their knees and they would walk those wooden steps up to the entrance of that church and they would say the rosary as they they did. And you would see this every time you go to St. Joseph's Forte, you see these pilgrims going up these steps. There's another uh, Roman Catholic church uh, that's even more well-known in old Montreal, and that's the Notre Dame Cathedral. Maybe some of you have visited there. It was literally only about two or three blocks where we worked, and upon occasion, I would just run to that church and just see what was going on there. And it's really a beautiful edifice on the outside as well as also the, the inside. And it was a very well-known church. The Italian tenor Pavarotti would sing there upon occasion, and the pop singer Celine Dion was married there a number of years ago. But for our purposes this afternoon, what is most uh, important for us to know is that masses were held there uh, in a in in a daily way. Uh, And and I don't I don't know if you've ever uh, have attended uh, a Catholic church or attended uh, if you've ever gone to a Catholic church and and have witnessed a a mass. But if, if you did witness it, you, you probably came away with a description reflected in these words. When you, when you witness the Mass, there's the, it could be described by these words, uh, solemnity, sanctity, uh, gravity, there's kind of a weight there. Um, a, it was uh, a ritualistic. Was a, there was an elaborate, the, the Mass is an elaborate ritual of which the Eucharist, with the dissemination of the wafer and the wine, is in a very elaborate ritual. The Eucharist is part of the overall elaborate liturgy of the Mass. And it's also, if you're not accustomed to it and, and you don't really understand what's going on, th- there's a certain uh, beauty to it. There's a beauty to it. I remember that there was um, uh, uh, a Roman Catholic custodian at a well-known uh, uh, church in Arizona, a place called Jerome, Arizona. It's kind of a funky little town, but he, he was taking care of this building. And I and another pastor were talking with him, and this guy was from a Jewish background, and he was converted to Catholicism. I said, how did that take place? And he says, it was through the witness of the Mass. It's the real presence of Christ there, you know. Now, here's the thing. Um, apart from the so-called outward appeal of the Mass, what's really going on in it? That's what's really going on there. And why does it really matter? Why should it really matter to us? Okay? And this is what we're going to be considering here um, this afternoon. I want to draw your attention, first of all, um, to the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 9. The, uh, Hebrews chapter 9, obviously, is in the overall book of Hebrews. And I don't know how much you know about the book of Hebrews. It's one of the more uh, hefty books of the Bible. You know, when you think of hefty books of the Bible, you think of, like, the book of Romans, the book of Hebrews, the book of Revelation, and you have some of those apocalyptic, what we call passages of the Bible, the book of Daniel and Ezekiel and so on, okay? So the, the book of Hebrews is kind of dense, and it's not the most easy book. But you can understand if you just begin to break it down to its basic elements. And the book of Hebrews really contrasts the, the, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, the Old Testament and the New Testament. And what the book of Hebrews is about is about the superiority of Jesus Christ over against the Old Testament system. So when you, when you consider the, the book of, of Hebrews, if you can put it under really one simple theme, that theme is this, Jesus is better. Just remember that, Jesus is better. Jesus' person is better than some of the significant persons of the Old Testament, particularly as the book of Hebrews spells out, Moses and his brother Aaron. Jesus' priesthood is greater than the Old, Old Testament priesthood. He's filled with a number of priests. And not only is Jesus' person and priesthood superior to that of the Old Testament but also the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus Christ is superior, it is better to all the multiple bloody sacrifices of the Old Testament system. Now we come to Hebrews chapter 9, and when you come to Hebrews chapter 9, when you, open it, when you begin with the opening verses, what you find is that there is a description of the Old Testament tabernacle and the Old Testament priesthood and also the Old Testament sacrifices. 
And all of them, this is very important that we understand this, all of them pointed forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. So the Old Testament temple and the furniture of the temple pointed forward to Jesus Christ. The Old Testament priesthood collectively points forward to the coming of Jesus Christ as the great high priest, the risen and ascended Christ. The Old Testament sacrifices, which were part of the Old Testament tabernacle and temple, all were designed, these bloody sacrifices, to point us forward to Jesus Christ as the once and for all bloody sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. So this is all to say, and this is why it's so important to read the Old Testament, that everything about the first two-thirds of the Bible are always designed to point us forward and to focus our attention on the centrality of Jesus. This is why when I'm working with individuals who first coming to faith and they're learning the Bible for the first time, a lot of times they'll say, well, where do I begin reading? And I always say, well, the Bible is ultimately a story, so why don't you begin with the first book of the Bible? Start with Genesis. This is a foundational book. And then read on. Because the thing is, is that when you look at the Old Testament, it is all what we call preparatory, and it whets our appetite for the coming of Jesus into this world to demonstrate that he's better than the Old Testament system. In fact, what Jesus does is he makes the Old Testament system obsolete. There's no more need for it. And this is expressed in a very tangible way on one thing that was very significant in Jewish history and it happened once a year. It's called Yom Kippur, which is the Day of Atonement. And on that day, not a regular priest, but a high priest. There were many priests, but there's only one high priest. And that high priest would go into a place called the Holy of Holies. So the regular priests, which were many, would go into the outer courtyard in a place called the Holy Place. But there was a certain section, a perfect cube, which was a place called the Most Holy Place where God dwelt. And the high priest would take the blood of sacrificial bulls and goats and he would go through a veil, through a curtain, into the most holy place and he would sprinkle the blood of bulls and goats on what was called the top of the Ark of the Covenant, the mercy seat. And he would do that in order to smooth over the wrath of God and have God express mercy to his people for all those sins that were committed by the people of God in ignorance. Now, much more could be said about this, but the main point is, is whether you look at the regular work of the priests and all the bloody sacrifices that they performed, or whether you look at what happened on Yom Kippur, all those sacrifices together point forward to the need of Jesus, for it is Jesus who provides a better way and a better sacrifice. Now, with that in mind, I want to draw your attention to verses 11 and 12. If you have your Bibles open, Hebrews 9, verses 11 and 12. But when Christ appeared, okay, this is after all of the description of what goes on in the temple and with the sacrificial system, particularly on the day of Yom Kippur. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, referring to heaven itself, he entered, now notice this, once and for all, into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. What's really saying in, in basic language is this. You have all these bloody sacrifices of the Old Testament, and then you have the blood of bulls and goats that are spread on the mercy seat to propitiate or smooth over the wrath of God upon the sins of the people committed in ignorance. And all of this occurs year after year, and the sacrifices of the regular priests occur daily, day after day after day. Can you, the Old Testament is such a bloody, bloody book. Then Jesus Christ comes, and what does he do? He sheds his own blood. There's no need for the blood of bulls and goats. They merely pointed to Jesus. He comes, and he sheds his own blood once and for all for the forgiveness of our sins and to place us forever into right standing with God. All right, more could be said. 
as we step back from this for just a moment, you might say, okay, um, thank you for that, and um, that's helpful. It helps me to understand the, the basic differences between Old and New Covenant. Um, but what does this really have to do with the Mass? And why do you even read that? And why do you explain that, you know, leading up to the Mass? I mean, so what? I mean, what, what, what is the Mass all about? And particularly, how does the Mass relate to the Lord's Supper? How does it compare and contrast to the Lord's Supper? And probably in a, in a really practical way, what does it really matter? I mean, who cares? We're not Roman Catholics? At this point, I want to describe three things about the Roman Catholic Mass. Just three things. I don't want to get caught up into all the details. And these are three things that basically provide a synopsis of most of what we find in question and answer 80 of the Heidelberg Catechism. So listen carefully to this, because, because you may be here this afternoon and say, you know, I really, I, I don't know all that much about the Mass. Okay, here's the thing. When you think of the Mass, think of the Mass not as a meal on a table, but a sacrifice on an altar. I'll say it again. The Mass is not so much a meal at a table as it is a sacrifice on the altar. It's a very fundamental point, but it's a very important point. I don't know if you've ever visited a Roman Catholic church, but if you enter into it, you will, you will see that it's much more, in terms of its architecture, much more elaborate than most what we call Protestant churches, and even this one. This is very basic, right? It's very different from a Catholic church in many ways. And you go into a Catholic church, and when you come through the entrance, and you come into what's called the sanctuary where the people of God worship, you look to the front, and what do you find at the front? You find an altar. Now, you come through the doors of this church building, and you come through the, the doors leading into this area where we worship. What's the first thing you see? What's, the, what's, what's front and center here? Is it an altar? No, it's a pulpit. And why is it a pulpit? Because we come from a tradition that values the preaching and the teaching of the word of God. For the apostle Paul says to Timothy, he says, preach the word, always, in season and out of season. When the people want to receive it or when they don't, it doesn't matter. You, this is your fundamental task as a pastor, is to preach the word of God. It's not the only thing you do, but it's the fundamental thing. And this is what seminaries do. They teach guys to preach. The apostle Peter puts it like this. He says, you've been uh, saved not by... Uh, how does he put it? Or you've been born again, not by seed, which is corruptible, but by that which is incorruptible. That is the living and abiding word of God. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word, the word of the Lord abides forever. And this is the word that was preached to you, he says. Preach it, preach it. But when you go into a Catholic church, it's not as if they don't give homilies or they don't give any explanation of the word, but it's not what is first and foremost in worship what is first and foremost it's not the pulpit it's the altar where we find what a sacrifice of christ the altar which leads us to the second point which i just said the mass is not so much a remembrance of christ like we have in the lord's supper but the mass is where there is a re-sacrifice of christ and maybe you say, did I get that right? Re-sac- they re-sacrifice Christ? And the answer is, yes, they re-sacrifice Christ. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that you and I cannot have the biting forgiveness of sins unless we come to the Mass where Christ is re-sacrificed for us in a daily way. That that sacrifice, that re-sacrifice that takes place in the Mass is what we call, or what they call, a propitiatory sacrifice. Just like the Old Testament priests going in on Yom Kippur where the wrath of God upon human sin, our sins, is propitiated, it is smoothed over, and our sins are forgiven until we sin again. And then we got to come back to the Mass. And we have to keep coming back to the Mass for the sake of the re-sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Where does that really leave you? It leaves you burdened in your conscience and it leaves you with a lack of assurance. Like, do I really have eternal redemption, as the book of Hebrews says, or, really, or, or don't I? 
Catholic Church says, no, this is why you need to come to the Mass. Daily. Now, the Roman Catholics will try to get away from the sacrifice by stating that this is, this is, this is, is not quite the same as the sacrifice of Jesus Christ in this sense, that when, when Christ is re-sacrificed in the Mass, they will say, but this is not a bloody sacrifice. There's only one bloody sacrifice, right? That's what we read in the book of Hebrews. What this is, this is an unbloody sacrifice. But whether it's bloody or unbloody, the point is, it's a sacrifice. Why do we need a sacrifice if Christ has rendered that sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins and eternal redemption with God once and for all? In fact, this is an interesting thing, that when you go to the book of Hebrews, do you know what one phrase is mentioned over and over and over again? Once and for all. Once and for all. Once and for all. Once and for all. Over and over again. As, as, if, as if we need reminding, which we do, that when Christ came in fulfillment of all those bloody sacrifices of the Old Testament, he came not to sacrifice himself over and over again or have the church sacrifice him over and over again, but he gave his life once and his blood was shed once to secure for us redemption, freedom, forgiveness, a conscience that is at peace. One final thing about the Mass, and that is this. The Mass is not only really a worship of Christ in heaven. They would not deny that Christ needs to be worshipped in heaven. But the Mass also is the worship of Jesus in earthly elements of bread and wine. There's the understanding that in the Eucharist portion of the Mass, when the priest utters the words of consecration, this is my body and this is my blood, the bread or the wafer and the wine actually turn into the body and the blood of Jesus. Now, that's confusing for a lot of people when they first hear it because they go, well, how, how does that all take place? So there's a, there's a doctrine within Catholicism called, and, and if you go through catechism classes, you know, when you're younger, maybe you will remember this term. It's called transubstantiation. It comes from two different words. Trans, which means change, and substantiation from substance or essence. So the belief is this, that when the Catholic priest utters the words of consecration, this is my body and this is my blood, the substance or the very essence of the bread and wine is changed into the body and blood of Jesus Christ, but the form remains the same. So it's like when you understand that, then you understand that when you, when you come to the Mass and the Eucharist portion of the Mass, it's not like you have a chunk of Christ's flesh in your hand or you have Christ's blood dripping from your hand and then you, you partake of that. No, that's not what the Catholic Church teaches, but it's saying the essence, the very substance of it, invisible, it changes, but the forms remain the same. So you partake of the wafer, the wine is drunk, and when that takes place, you're actually eating, drinking the body and the blood of Jesus Christ. And since the body and the blood of Jesus Christ is actually in the elements of the wafer and the wine, it is there where he is present, and because he is present there, that's there where he is to be worshipped. What does the book of Hebrews teach us? What does the rest of the Bible teach us? What it teaches us that Christ is not in the elements of bread and wine, the Lord's Supper, the elements are what we call signs and seals. That is, they point beyond themselves to the body and the blood of Jesus Christ given to us for the once and for all forgiveness of our sins. And they are also seals. That means they are guarantees or confirmations of the promise of God that when we repent and we believe in Jesus Christ and we partake of the bread and the wine repentantly and believingly, we have eternal forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God, again, all through Jesus Christ. Now, those are some of the differences. Okay, 
So you can kind of step back from this and say, okay, again, that's all kind of interesting. Now I understand a bit about uh, Hebrews and I understand a bit about the Roman Catholic Mass and how it differs from the Lord's Supper. But really, is this all that important? We have to realize that for individuals throughout history, there have been times where this has been very, very important. Let me give you one example from history. There was a young woman whose name is, and maybe you know the story, her name is called uh, Lady Jane Grey in England during the time of the Protestant Reformation. And she was a young woman who had the conviction that what the Mass taught was not in reality what the Bible taught, and it was not a proper reflection of Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper. And she was thrown into prison for her conviction. That's how serious it was at the time. And there was a Roman Catholic theologian named uh, John Feckenham who visited her in prison and tried to convince her of the truth of the Mass. But she would not yield. And four days before she was executed, she said this, and A.V., if you could put that quote on there. Most assuredly, I do not believe I receive the flesh and blood of Christ in the Eucharist, but I receive bread and wine, which bread, when it is broken, and wine, when it is poured, helps me to remember that Christ's body was broken and his blood shed for me. A simple response, truthful response, a 16-year-old response, and this young woman, four days later, uh, lost her head, literally. She was beheaded for the faith. Now, we, we look at that today and we go, you know, you know how we oftentimes respond. We go, well, you know, those were different days back during the 1500s and the Protestant Reformation. People gave their lives and the Catholics and Protestants were at each other's throats and so on. It's true. But we have to ask ourselves the question, would we be willing to die for the truth of the Lord's Supper as we read it in the Bible? Would we would be willing to die for a denial of the Mass? Well, it, it depends if you really understand what's going on in the Mass, and if you really understand what's going on in the Lord's Supper, and if you really understand what's at stake. And what's at stake? It's the Gospel. It's the Gospel. Um, what is the Gospel? What is the gospel? Um, you know what the gospel is? It's very simple. The gospel is that God the Father sent his son Jesus Christ into the world to save sinners. To save them from their sins. To save them from themselves. And to cut through the barrier that stands between humanity and God and that is sin. And to save them from the wrath and judgment of Almighty God. Jesus came into the world precisely to do that so that whoever believes in Jesus comes to the end of themselves, turns from their sin, and turns to Jesus Christ in faith and faith alone, have the forgiveness of sins and eternal redemption precisely as the book of Hebrews says. That's the gospel. And it's a gospel that is brought to our attention with great clarity and beauty well throughout the Bible but here's one point A.V. if you can put that on there from the book of Colossians the apostle Paul writes and you were dead in your trespasses and sins but God praise God made you alive together with him having forgiven all our trespasses not some but all he did this by canceling the record of debt the debt of sin that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. We have this debt of sin that there's no way that we can pay off to God. We cannot work our way to God. We are all absolutely dependent upon the work of Jesus Christ. You and I, we are not a performance-driven people, at least according to the gospel. We can't perform in a certain way and we can't work in a certain way consistently enough 
to get ourselves into the good graces of God. We need Jesus, and we need the once and for all sacrifice of Jesus to pay that debt. My friends, as we come to a close here, that's precisely what we celebrate in the Lord's Supper. Every time we gather together for the Lord's Supper and we draw near to partake of the bread and wine, we are reminded through the bread that points to the body of Christ and the wine that points to the blood of Jesus Christ, that both of them were given once and for all, once and for all for the forgiveness of sins and eternal redemption. Do you know what that does for your conscience? It frees it. Do you know what it does for your assurance? It gives you the comfort that you need, that when that time comes and you grow old, and you may find yourself in hospice and you're lying in that bed and your kids come along and they pay you that visit and maybe say their last goodbyes. You can say that you are not your own, but you belong, body and soul, in life and in death, to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave his life for you. And that's the gospel. That's the gospel. So my friends, we worship in a church that has been liberated by the gospel and Jesus invites us into that gospel now and every time that we celebrate the Lord's Supper together. So let's do this. Let's thank him for that gospel and for the freedom and the joy that we have in Christ. We're gonna do that in song in just a moment, but please join me in a brief prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Reformation tradition. We thank you above all for the gospel and the person and the work of Jesus who is not an 80% Savior or a 90% Savior or even a 99% Savior requiring that 1% of effort on our part, but he is a sufficient Savior for all those, all those willing to repent and to embrace him in faith, in trust. What a beautiful thing that is. What a comforting thing that is. And Father, we pray that this is not something that we just hear today, but it's something that we carry with us into the coming week. Indeed, something that we carry with us to our dying day, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We are going to sing in response now a beautiful song that speaks about the deep love of the Father for us in Christ Jesus, and that is how deep the Father's love. Let's stand and let's sing together.
Another way that we find the gospel articulated, explained for us, are in the words of the fundamentals of the faith that we embrace called the Apostles' Creed. And we're going to sing that now from hymn two. And so why don't we uh, sing that together? to uh, the Lord in a brief prayer. Heavenly Father, we, um, we reflect on what we've heard in the preaching, but Lord, we also reflect on the foundation or the foundations of our faith that we have sung together as an expression of the Apostles' Creed. And... Um, Lord, we, we are reminded, O oh God, of just how rich you are in grace and how you bid fallen sinners to draw near to you that they may find their life and their joy and their freedom in Christ. We thank you for this deposit of truth that you've sown among us. And Father, we pray also that if we are here this afternoon and we honestly confess there are times when we doubt. There's times when we lack assurance. There's times that we are not always comforted by the gospel because we believe that it's really for others, but maybe not for us. Because the fact of the matter is, Lord, sometimes when we confess it this afternoon, we just feel unworthy. We just feel unworthy. 
Oh, Lord, show us the scriptures and show us, oh God, and empower us to believe that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And to believe that if you could save individuals like the prodigal son, if you could receive lost sinners like the apostle Paul, Oh, God, if you can save tax, pack, uh, tax collectors and, and, and prostitutes and people involved in the most heinous of things, then Jesus is a Savior for us too. And so, Father, we pray that collectively we may draw near to your throne of grace in Jesus' name to find comfort and confidence in our time of need. Oh, God, if there's anything that we are left with this day, we pray that it is that. Lord, we also pray this day for, um, Lord, not only this church, for the, the community of this church and the teaching ministry of this church, but Lord, we pray for uh, various uh, educational institutions that we either support directly with our funds, oh Lord, but, or that we just, we just pray for. Lord, we want to we'll pray for a number of these things. Lord, we pray for the schools to whom we send our children, and for those of us, O oh Lord, who train our children in a home, who homeschool, Lord, we need your grace. We need your financial provision for this to take place. We pray for patience, for the parents who teach their children in their home, but also for the teachers to whom many parents have entrusted to teach their children that all areas of academic endeavor come under the umbrella of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. God, bless our schools with fidelity to the word. Bless our schools, O Lord, with fidelity of the parents and their children to the churches to whom they belong. We pray, O God, for truth not only to be taught, but we pray for the kind of community that will nourish, O God, and ignite the hearts of our children to have the fire of Elijah in their bones when they enter into this world, into this workaday world, and into their various vocations, whatever they may be, to, to, not, to, to not only um, follow Jesus Christ in their lives consistently, but also that they may follow him with great effect upon those in the world who are without Christ who are like the people of Nineveh who don't know their left hand from their right spiritually. Father, we pray for the various Christian universities here in Canada, in, in the U.S., that are seeking in their various ways to, to embrace the lordship of Jesus Christ over all things. Father, we're not always very uh, satisfied sometimes with the perspective that is given but nonetheless, Father, they need our prayers. We pray for them for fidelity to the scriptures and fidelity particularly to the confessional standards of our churches. We pray that you give the teachers encouragement and the strength that they need to preach or, or, or to teach in a way that is, that is winsome, in a way that is understood, and in a way where through the reaction of the students, they might receive the encouragement that they need to keep going. Lord, we pray for Christian instructors who work in public education, in the primary schools, in the secondary schools, in the public universities. Lord, too, that, that can be a lonely, lonely place. And it can be somewhat of a dicey place as well about knowing how to teach in a way that does not undermine their Christian convictions. And also, Lord, to provide opportunities for students to inquire, why do you hold the perspective that you do? Why do you believe the way that you do? And so, Father, we pray for opportunities like that and that you bless those in the public education realm who serve the name of Jesus Christ there. So, Lord, these, these are the things that we bring before you on, on behalf of the education system, which is in really so much disarray in our land. Oh, Father, our nation needs Christ. Our nation needs the church. Our nation needs a reformation of principles, but most of all, they need a reviving of their hearts. And Lord, sometimes we look at our nation and we just throw up our hands and say, it's just going to, as we say, to hell in a handbasket. We can't change this and we just, it's going bad. It's bad, it's bad. Lord, we know that you are sovereign over the nations. 
and we know that you have revived nations before and you have revived churches before through a sovereign descent of your spirit. And we pray that, O oh God, for the nation of Canada. And we pray, O oh Lord, that we would return to first principles and that the churches would return to their first love, which is the person of Jesus Christ. So, Father, we bring this to you. We ask you, O oh Lord, that you will answer this prayer. And we trust that you will, Lord, because we know that we serve a risen, as we have seen, and ascended Jesus Christ, who is our, not only our high priest in heaven, but our intercessor and the one through whom we bring our prayers to you, O Father. And because he's a sufficient Savior, we know that you are a Father who listens to us and who loves to answer our prayers even more many times than we are even willing to pray. And with that kind of confidence, we bring this prayer to you and pray this all again in Jesus' name. Amen. Once again, we have the opportunity of giving uh, for our offerings, and our offering is for Mission Aviation Fellowship. seal it, O Lord. Seal it for your courts above. If we're going to seal our hearts to the Lord, then we need the Lord to bless us to that end, don't we? So once again, receive the blessing of the Lord this day. The grace of the Lord Jesus be and abide with you all. Amen.